said, if we haven't had an opportunity to meet yet, I'm part of the uh, teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and uh, we're privileged to have you with us here uh, this morning. We're also privileged to have a special guest with us uh, this morning, whom you'll be hearing from in just a little while, and a special welcome uh, to all those who are visiting with us from uh, under the same sun, and you'll hear a little bit more about their mission as we go through the course of our morning. Uh, this is a, a great morning to uh, be with us because you will uh, get to hear a lot about uh, some of the way in which we think uh, here at Jericho Ridge and how we go about partnering with different agencies and organizations. And last week, uh, if you were with us, we began a teaching series in two of the shortest books in the Bible, that being Second and Third John. Very short, uh, just a couple of verses long, each of them, and each of them actually repeat a lot of the themes that are found in the other writings uh, by the author, John, who was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And so our series, as we look through 2 John and 3 John, is titled, Watch, Wait, and Go. And these are three themes that will be found uh, throughout the book's of 2nd and 3rd John. So last week we introduced a couple of the key concepts that come up in the books of 2nd and 3rd John. So it's time for a little bit of a pop quiz on the three signals that you see there on the crosswalk. So the first signal, the little I, what does the little I stand for? Watch. And how are you supposed to watch? What does John counsel? Watch with, anybody remember? You can open your, um, your momentum journals from last week and cheat from the notes that you took on page 36. Watch with vigilance, John says. Watch with vigilance because there's a lot of things going on in the world and you have to be aware of what's going on in the world in order to engage with it as a person of faith. So watch with vigilance. All right, the little hand stands for what? Wait. And what are you doing while you're waiting? What's the word that John uses? discernment. You wait with discernment. Watch with vigilance, pay attention, and then while you're waiting, don't just rush into the first thing that you see. Exercise some discernment, John says. And then the little walking person is for go. That's right. And how are we to go? What, is, what words does John use to encourage us when we go? Go with faith, he says. When you've exercised vigilance, and discernment, then when God says move, you exercise faith, and you move in the direction that he tells you to move in. So we're going to continue in 2 John this morning, and we're going to look at one of the big themes of 2 John, which is the theme of deception. The theme of deception. And so let's pray as we look into God's word this morning. God, we say thank you for this time and this opportunity that we have to gather in this place and to hear from you. We pray that you would open our eyes to see what it is that you want to teach us. We pray that you would help us to open our hearts with discernment to hear from you and to understand what it is that you're speaking to us. And then when you impart that to us, God, we want to move and go with the faith that comes from you. And so we thank you for that, God. We come with a sense of anticipation into this place today, that you will speak to each and every one of us here this morning by your Holy Spirit through your word, which is truth. So we say thank you for that, and we open our hearts to that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the theme in Second John of uh, deception follows its way through, and I want to use a metaphor for uh, the opening of our time together this morning. How many of you are summer movie buffs? You go and see all the big blockbusters that come out in the summer? All right, a few of you. Okay, what are some movies that you went to see this summer? A Diary of a Wimpy Kid. All right. Did you read the book before or after? Yes? All right. All right. What else? What other summer blockbusters you went to see? Shout it out. Sorry? Inception. Absolutely. What else? Other ones? Despicable Me. Very funny. Enjoyed it very much. Yes, what else? Iron Man 2, another big blockbuster. What else? Toy Story 3, yeah, that did really well at the box office, didn't it? So in the, in the summer, there tends to be a bit of a culture that we've created, at least in North America, about releasing certain types 
of uh, films. And so for critics, you don't usually release like critical movies that the critics love in the summer, but this summer was a bit of an exception that uh, both a movie that critics loved and audiences seemed to respond to well was released. And one of the big hits of this summer was the movie Inception. So I went to see the movie uh, Inception with my father-in-law, and we went for the IMAX uh, because it was showing at the right time and got ripped off for the extra few dollars that they charge you to get in at the IMAX, but uh, I digress. But uh, how many of you have seen or have kind of heard of this movie, Inception? All right, so a good, a good number of you. So uh, for those of you who have not seen it yet, just a spoiler alert. I'm going to tell you a little more about the plot than you may care to know if you haven't seen the movie yet. So you can just, I don't know, for the next couple of minutes, uh, go for a walk around the walking track or put your hands over your ears and pretend that you know, you're not listening or just, I don't know, go somewhere else for the next couple of minutes if you don't want to have the movie spoiled for you. But not to ruin the whole thing for you, but the movie, if, if you've seen it, the movie is very similar in its orientation and in its theme to movies uh, like the Matrix trilogies. And what it does is it begins to ask the question of what is really real? How do you know what's real? How do you know what's true? How do you know that as you live your life and go about the things that you do on a day-to-day basis, that you're actually living in an alignment with truth and what's what's really real? If you were confronted, the movie asks, with a dream that was similar to your life in every way except for one or two minor details, how would you know the difference? Would you be able to pick up on what's true and what's false if there were only a couple of elements that were different? How would you know how to discern? And in the movie, DiCaprio's character, uh, Dom Cobb, is a thief. And he's charged with entering the dream worlds that people have when they sleep and stealing ideas that they have there. So it's a kind of highly sophisticated corporate espionage that he's paid very well to do. And in this one job, uh, the final job that he's going to do, they actually ask him to do the opposite, not to steal an idea from someone's dream state, but to actually implant an idea there, which is the title of the movie, Inception. And in the film, they have to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And there's so many different subtleties to all of these different worlds as to how you know what's real and what's not real. And so the characters that are there, they actually each have a little a thing that they call a totem. Or uh, for Cobb's character, it's a little weighted top that when he spins this top, it will spin for a certain length of time and then it will topple in the real world. But in a world that is not real, even though it seems in every other way similar to his world, he'll spin the top and the top will just keep spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. It will never topple. And so that's how he answers the question in his world. How do you know What's true? How do you know that you're in and living in accordance with what's true? And this is his guide. But even those that are closest to him in the movie begin to lose touch with what's true. And they begin to craft dream worlds for themselves that are so similar to their world, but are false in just one or two key ways. And in the end, that's the piece that makes the whole thing come unraveled for them. So the movie prompts us to ask questions. How do you know? What's true? How do you know that uh, in a given action that you're going to take, or a given a theory, or a given religious system, or a proposition, how do you know that it's true? You have to have some kind of a reference point. You have to have some kind of an anchor that will help you discern and understand, am I aligning my values and my system and my life in accordance with what's really real? And for the Christian tradition, this is, we find this in the Bible. Because it's the revealed truth about God and the revealed truth about God's character and his work in the world and how he wants us to live. All of these things are laid out for us with clarity in the scriptures. And this is uh, our totem because the scriptures give us a reliable and clear and understanding picture of a witness of the work and the person of Jesus Christ, that he lived that he died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised to life again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And you might begin to ask yourself questions like, well, how do I know that that is really true? 
How could I be sure that what the Bible says about Jesus is really true? And one thought that you might have is, well, maybe if I lived closer to when Jesus lived, I could know for sure. There'd certainly be no ambiguity while Jesus was either immediately alive or shortly thereafter about what's really true. But you might be surprised to find out that even in the immediate time period after Jesus was raised to heaven again, after he lived, very, very shortly after that, there began to be a whole bunch of confusion as to who Jesus claimed he was and what he did. Right in the first century, while people who knew Jesus were still alive, there were all kinds of ideas and teachings that were spreading very rapidly that were almost true, but not quite true. And so when you read through the New Testament, the documents that were written uh, shortly after Jesus' life, a reliable witness of who he is and what he came to do, a lot of them are written with a tone to help correct and help us understand what is the one or two elements of that proposition that was spreading around the ancient, near, uh, ancient world about Jesus that was accurate, but what were the one or two things that maybe were not accurate and needed to be challenged? And so for John, as he writes to this, he writes to a group of people that believe most things about Jesus, but they have one or two ideas that are not in alignment with what the scripture teaches about who Jesus is, that he came as a human being. And he may have been here, but John thinks that, uh, they think to themselves, well, he may have come, people may have observed him, but maybe he came just as a spirit, a disembodied spirit. Maybe he didn't actually come as fully human. And so John writes in 2 John Uh, starting in verse 7. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. I'm going to read through to the end of the chapter. John says, starting in verse 7 of 2 John, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I say this, he's teaching about living in the truth. Last week we talked about that. Because many deceivers have gone out into the world. They deny, here's the one or two pieces that they, they like most things about Jesus, but here's the thing they deny. They deny that Jesus Christ came in a real body. Such a person, John says, is a deceiver and an antichrist, or someone who sets himself up in opposition to Christ. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked hard for you to achieve. Be diligent so that you receive your full reward. He's talking about not losing a hold on the truth. Anyone who wanders away from this teaching has no relationship with God. But anyone who remains in the teaching of Christ has a relationship both with the Father, God the Father, and Jesus the Son. Then he goes on with a little bit more practical instruction. If anybody comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person into your home or give them any kind of encouragement. A lot of the churches at this time met in houses. He says, don't let them come and teach because they're not going to teach what's true. Anyone who encourages such people, in fact, becomes a partner in their evil work. I have much more to say to you, but I don't want to do it with paper and ink. It's like sending an email. You're like, I got much more to tell you, but I have to do this in person because you've got to hear it from, straight from me. I hope to visit you soon and talk with you face to face. Then our joy will be complete. Uh, greetings uh, from other churches in the area chosen by God. So John is writing his corrective. And in 2 John, he says, listen, there's a few things that are floating around out there about Jesus that are not true, and we have to nip these things in the bud. And he names one of them and says, when it comes to Jesus, there is a way that you can know that you're not being deceived. There is a way that you can navigate all of the complexities of propositions and truth that people are talking about who Jesus is and what he did. He says, you just ask them a simple set of questions to find out what is the truth. You just ask them, did Jesus come? Do you believe that Jesus came and was fully human? Did he come in the flesh? Was he born of a virgin? That Jesus came in a real body and lived a real life has been a core teaching of the Christian church since Jesus initiated it in the early part of the first century. And so in the early parts of the Christian movement, there was a lot of questions that came up amongst different churches, saying, well, how do we know this? How can we, how could we decide this? And what would it look like to teach this? And so there was a gathering of the early church 
in, the, in a place called Nicaea in the early part of the 300s. And so they came up with a creed that's one of the earliest Christian creeds or earliest Christian statements of faith or confessions that is agreed to uh, by the Christian movement in all parts of the world. And when it comes to the part about Jesus, it says this, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. He came for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit, and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. Fully God, fully man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. And this is one of the earliest confessions of the Christian church, which is held by, no matter where you go actually in the world today, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, Protestant traditions will agree on the Nicene Creed, which was established as an early part of a way to teach and understand Christian theology. So it's not a new idea or not a 21st century notion or challenge to ask the question, was Jesus fully God and fully human? This was a question that was circulating right away in the early part of the first century. Many people in our day and many people in Jesus' day believed that he was a good moral example, but maybe he was not the Son of God. Many people in our day and many people in the first century believed that, well, maybe Jesus came, maybe he was a prophet, maybe there was an element of God's special favor on him in some way, but when he died on the cross, that was just a, a person dying on the cross. Or that was maybe other religious traditions teach that maybe it was just a spirit dying on the cross. It wasn't Jesus' human body that was buried and raised to life again. So the question that emerges and that we need to wrestle with is, why does John make such a big fuss about this? Why is this an important element of Christian doctrine and teaching? Why does John spend so much time saying, and and say, you know, if a person teaches this, don't even associate with them. Don't let them in your house. Don't Don't even hang around with them at all because they're so deceived and we don't want to let that deception translate into any of the teaching and life of the church. Why would John get so hot and bothered about this idea of Jesus' humanity? Well, one of the reasons why the teaching and the understanding of scriptures that we have about Jesus being fully God and fully human matters is because it demonstrates in his humanity that God can relate to us, to you and to me. In Hebrews chapter 4, it talks about this and says, listen, we don't have uh, a high priest or we don't have a person in that place of authority with God who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses as human beings. Because, Hebrews 4 says, in every way Jesus was tempted as we are, but was without sin. If Jesus was fully God, then we can look at that and say, oh yeah, it doesn't matter that Jesus was tempted as we are. He can't relate to me because he was just fully God. So he could resist temptation just with some of his divine attributes. There's no way that that I could do that. But the Bible teaches us very clearly that Jesus was fully human because God wanted to send us a very clear message to communicate to us that he can understand and relate to the things that we go through. Jesus was tempted in every way as we were, yet was without sin. And verse 16 of Hebrews 4 says, because of this, because we understand this, then it gives us great confidence that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence to find help and mercy and grace in our time of need. Because Jesus cared enough about your situation and my situation to send Jesus in a physical form, so that he experienced everything that you and I will experience in our lives. Every emotion that we experience, we think, well, God can't understand it when I get angry with him. No, he can't. Read through the scriptures. Read through the Psalms. Well, God can't understand loneliness in the way that I understand loneliness. No, he can. You read through the, the New Testament and listen to some of Jesus' emotional experiences as his friends and even God ultimately forsook him on the cross. God knows what you're going through and he can relate to it very, very personally because 
Jesus came as a human being. And so it demonstrates to us that God knows and can relate to you and to me and our circumstances. God is not aloof and sitting up in heaven and going, yeah, well, they seem to be having a challenge with that. I wouldn't know anything about that. God knows intimately what it is that you're challenged with and the things that you're going through and your struggles and your reality because Jesus experienced things as a human being. So that's one of the reasons why this doctrine of Jesus' full humanity is important. The other thing that it demonstrates to us, and Hebrews teaches us this as well, is that Jesus' humanity is integral to God's plan to redeem all things. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 says it this way. Because God's children are flesh and blood, human beings, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all those who have lived as slaves to the fear of dying. The scripture teaches us that when God raised Jesus' physical body from the dead, God was demonstrating to us his divine authority and power over all things. And the clear implication is even over death itself. And then God says that you and I then can live in a place where we don't actually have to be afraid of death because Jesus has broken that authority and power of death. Because if you trust in Christ and what he did for you, that that too will be your reality, that the physical fear of physical death disappears in the face of that. Because just like God raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible uses the term of firstfruits, that God also has the authority and the power in the end of all time to raise the physical bodies of those who have trusted Christ as their Savior from the dead to spend eternity with him. And so God used this as a demonstration for us, as a bit of an object lesson to say, yeah, Jesus was fully human, and I raised him from the dead. He broke the power and the curse of sin and death has, and you too can experience that in your life. There's many more reasons why Jesus, uh, that it matters that Jesus was fully God and fully human. But there's one more that's a bit more philosophical and contemporary, which will lead to our guest sharing with us this morning. And that is that Jesus' appearance in physical form counters the philosophical notion of dualism. And dualism is this, we may not express it in such fancy terms, but dualism is a philosophical concept that says that things that are spiritual are good and things that are physical, somehow that's unholy and it's tainted and we shouldn't bother ourselves with that at all. Anything that's kind of of the physical element of creation, don't worry about it at all. Our physical bodies or the physical earth and creation. And this leads to all kinds of wrong-headed notions. You might say, oh, people don't believe that garbage, do they? People don't, people don't believe that like spiritual stuff is good and physical stuff is somehow tainted. Are you sure? I'd, I'd venture to say that there's a lot of evangelicals running around in the world today that believe this. Because if you were to really ask them about the implications of their theological thinking, you push a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper and finally, you might get them to admit that really, they think, they believe that all God cares about is our souls. And so if we can run around, get people's souls right with Jesus, that's all that matters. And nothing else counts. Which is a very truncated view of how God thinks about our world. He's in the business of redeeming all things, the scriptures say. Not just our souls. But a lot of evangelicals are a little bit run around as if they believe that. Al Thiessen, who's our moderator here at Jericho Ridge, is fond of saying, and if you hang around with him, we'll hear him say it over and over and over and over again, that you've got to watch out because in order to act correctly, you have to think correctly. And if you think correctly, then you have a higher degree of probability that you're going to live out that reality, like we talked about last week, and you will then act correctly. But... If you don't begin by thinking correctly about whatever topic it is, then you're not going to act 
in accordance with that. And you're going to have deception and faulty beliefs built in from the very beginning. And that will lead to justifying all kinds of wrong actions. The implications of not believing that Jesus came as fully human are very significant. Because if we don't believe that he's fully human, then you can actually go down the track of thinking, well, if Jesus wasn't fully human, maybe there's other people that aren't fully human as well. Maybe in some cultures there's deception that has taken such a deep root and such dualistic thinking that's alive and well that it has all kinds of very dark and very dangerous and sinister implications. Well, in just a minute, we're going to watch uh, a brief interview uh, with our guest, which was taken, uh, filmed earlier this week on PBS News. Just before we do that, one thing, uh, Ruth Ellen, uh, we forgot to do earlier in the morning was receive the offering. So I'm going to ask the ushers if they would come and get ready to receive the offering uh, just as we uh, watch this clip. And I want you to watch this brief interview from this past week. And what I want you to see and think about this morning is that if we don't think correctly, how is this an evidence of then us and a whole entire culture, in some cases, not acting correctly? So watch this interview and we'll receive the offering this time. Okay, Vicki, let's talk a little bit about your story. You're uh, based in Tanzania, um, and you decided to begin reporting on what witch doctors were doing with organs from albinos. Now, to give us a little bit of perspective, there is still a lot of faith in witch doctors in Tanzania, right? Tanzanian, Tanzanian government lifted a ban on the practices of uh, witch doctors, and... Um, they said the reason why they have lifted that ban is because 60% of Tanzanians go to witch doctors. Wow. And so what, what, was, the, what was the specific thing you were inv investigating? What was happening with al albinos? I just wanted to know why persons with albinism are being murdered for their organs. And it was rumored then, uh, before I started my investigation, that uh, witch doctors are involved. That is why I went undercover as a businesswoman. And what did you find? They admitted that uh, they use uh, body parts of uh, persons with albinism to make magic potions in order to make people successful. And they, their clients range from uh, businessmen and women mm -hmm. to politicians, CEOs, the police, even religious leaders when they want promotion. It was discovered that you were taping these folks and since then you've been in danger? And so I was leaving from one house to another, one hotel, one motel to another, uh, shifting in order to confuse people who were following me. I started uh, wearing um, a veil. Uh, so sometimes to... a burqa or a veil just yes. so that they couldn't see your face? In Dar es Salaam where I live, um, there is a fence. This is an electric fence. And uh, I've got 24 hours uh, um, bodyguard services. My life hasn't gone back to normal. Why tolerate this? Why not give in and why not move someplace else and write some other kind of stories like these, uh, like these witch doctors would like you to do? I will be collaborating with them if I keep quiet. I'll be saying that it's okay to kill a person with albinism if I keep quiet. Well, I want to uh, introduce you to a very brave individual. And her name uh, is Vicky Netetema. And just this past week uh, in New York and then again in Los Angeles, she was awarded a Courage in Journalism Award by the International Women's Media Foundation for her reports, which exposed the grisly practices uh, of witchcraft-related slaughters for people with albinism in Tanzania. And Vicky is a former uh, bureau chief of the BBC in Tanzania, and now she works with an organization uh, which many of you here at Jericho Ridge will be familiar with under the same sun as the executive director of media. So let's welcome her to Jericho Ridge as she shares a little bit of her story with us this morning. Well, Thank Vicki, you. we uh, are, we are very privileged and glad to have you here uh, with us this morning. Uh, and I want you to help us understand a little bit about uh, deception and a little bit about uh, the level of deception 
that is present, that you indeed had to go undercover and pose as a businesswoman and endanger your own life and have received numerous threats in your life since that time to expose that. Talk to us about that level of deception. How deep does it go? Where does it come from? Uh, 93% of uh, Tanzanians believe in uh, witchcraft and witch doctors. 93% of Mm. the population. We have uh, more than 40 million Tanzanians uh, in the country. And uh, so you can imagine 93% Mm -hmm. if they go to witch doctors and uh, they believe in witchcraft. And uh, these witch doctors tell lies. They tell the people that persons with albinism are not human beings. They're ghosts. They're not supposed to be living among us. They have the powers, supernatural powers, to make people successful. Persons with albinism, from long time ago, they were killed at birth. And um, when they were buried, some people would go and uh, take their body parts. And so the parents, relatives, would bury them in their own home to stop people from getting their body parts. And when I was doing uh, the investigation, I met um, a religious leader a Roman Catholic priest. He has got a doctorate in anthropology. So he's educated. And he's a man of God. That's what we understand from priests. They are men of God. And so he said to me that, why do you think that people, I asked him, Why is it that people are being murdered? Persons with albinism are being murdered. And he said to me, well, the church believes in good witchcraft and bad witchcraft. They're murdered for their body parts. That is bad witchcraft. But good witchcraft is when my ancestors tell me to go and take a body part of a person with albinism from a grave. I'm not killing that person. I'm just using their body parts. That is good witchcraft. And this was not a hidden camera, a hidden recorder. I was interviewing him for a documentary, White and Black, that Under the Same Sun is producing. So he knew that that information will reach millions and millions of people in Tanzania and outside Tanzania. And he was proud to say that, that the church believes in ancestors, and if the ancestors tell us to go and get the body parts of persons with albinism from the graves, then we do that. And I said, I think the church believes in Jesus Christ. And he said, yeah, that's the European church. That is the Western church. They believe in Jesus Christ to reach God. We believe in our ancestors to reach God. That is African Christianity. So I said, Dr. Sandro, Christianity means following Jesus Christ. So if that is the case, why are you following your ancestors? Then you should call your church another name. You're not Christians. And he said, no. We are Christians, but we are African Christians. I said 93% of Tanzanians go to witch doctors. They practice witchcraft. They also think that Persons with albinism do not die. They disappear. And you can't see their graves. Of course they disappear because people make them disappear. They abduct them, 
they kill them, they abduct them, they drag them, and they bury them with chiefs. They bury them alive with chiefs. And so there is a very strong belief in witchcraft, and all these are lies. Because I tell people nowadays, when I get a chance, when I know that I'm safe, I say to them, when I went undercover, the witch doctors who have all these mighty powers didn't know that I was not a businesswoman. They thought that I was a businesswoman because I told them so. And I knew that if I went there with my microphone as a journalist, I would have been killed before even saying hello. So if they are so powerful and they can bewitch you, how come that they did not bewitch me? They didn't know that I was wired. I had a hidden camera. I had a recorder. So to make 93% of Tanzanians understand that there is no witchcraft, that witch doctors are just liars, they want their money, they want to remain powerful in the society, and they are very powerful. Okay. 93% is uh, the result from the study by Pew Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life. This is a recent study. 60% was the figure that was given to Tanzanians by the government. On the 23rd of January, after all the reports about the killings and that witch doctors are fueling the killings of persons with albinism, Tanzanian's Prime Minister, Mizengo Peter Pinda, banned the, the uh, practices of witch doctors, revoked their licenses. Now, before I go further, let me just say there are traditional healers who treat the clients who are sick using herbs, and there are witch doctors who practice witchcraft and who think they have got the power to bewitch anybody, even if they're thousand and thousand miles away from where they are. And traditional healers and witch doctors, all of them are given licenses because there's no fine line. Every witch doctor will say to the government official that issues uh, the licenses that he is a traditional healer. But when you go to a traditional healer's homestead, And the first thing they tell you that give me money before I do anything and that I'll tell you who is bewitching you, that is not a traditional healer. A traditional healer will be practicing alternative medicine, not witchcraft. Mm -hmm. And so the Tanzanian prime minister banned the licenses of all witch doctors and traditional healers. That was on the 23rd of January, 2009. And he got into trouble for that (laughs) because members of parliament were very angry. Why are you banning the licenses of these witch doctors? They were not angry when the first person with albinism was murdered for their body part. But they were angry because witch doctors are banned. Why? Because witch doctors also according to them, help politicians win elections, CEOs get promoted, religious leaders climb up the ladder. So if you're a priest and you want to be a bishop, go to a witch doctor. And they believe that. They they believe in the powers of witch doctors more than in the powers of Jesus Christ and in the powers of God. So witch doctors told me on record and it's not a secret, that they have banned our practices. Wait and see. During elections, 
They shouldn't come to us. Who are they? Ministers, politicians, all those would all those would be members of parliament. Mm -hmm. And so in September the government gave the powers back to witch doctors mm. and traditional healers. Why? Because on the 31st of October, this October, mm -hmm. we have general elections in Tanzania. And the reason the government said they had to return the licenses to the witch doctors was 60% of Tanzanians consult witch doctors when they get ill. Theirs is 60%. Pew Forum is 93%. So that is the reason why I said 60% because I was referring to the government's figures. So all what I can say is that the belief is in witchcraft and in witch doctors. And I'm here today, I'm ashamed that my country, that is known to be as a country of peace, a nation of peace, hosts quite a lot of refugees from neighboring countries, is now a place where persons with albinism do not feel safe. What can I say? I'm a Tanzanian. Mm. I decry all this. I don't believe in witchcraft. That's why I confronted witch doctors. But it's my country. Mm -hmm. So, Vicki, help us understand what are some of the things that... Um, that you think need to happen to put an end to this? Because you've talked about how it goes across political spectrums, uh, right up into levels of government. I mean, people all across society view this as a normative practice. So what are things that you think need to happen in order to try and change people's minds and hearts? Prayers, first and foremost. Because it seems as if we in Tanzania have lost faith in God and in Jesus. And we have faith in witchcraft and witch doctors. So prayers. But then, again, we need to educate the public. We need to keep on drumming home the message that witch doctors do not have power. That witchcraft is all lies to educate the public about albinism. That albinism is a condition. And persons with albinism are human beings just like you and me. Once the public of Tanzania understands that Albinism is just a genetic condition and anyone can carry the gene and that it takes two to tango. It takes the father and the mother to have the gene for a child to be born with albinism and that it's not a contagious disease and that we are all God's creation it's going to be very difficult for people in Tanzania to respect, love, and value our brothers and sisters with albinism. So education on albinism, even to persons with albinism, because some of them do not understand why they were born like that. But another thing is to educate, to give education to persons with albinism. If we educate persons with albinism in Tanzania, it means that they'll gain self-confidence, self-esteem, and people will respect them. 
We have a lawyer, but how many lawyers with albinism do we have? Only one, Abdallah Posse. If we keep on going to the public, to the community, with Posse, with Abdallah Posse, people are going to say, hey, look, he has albinism. He has master's, a master's degree. He's the dean of the faculty of law. He's a private advocate. So I can be like him. So we need role models. And Under the Same Sun has started this year. Actually, it started last year. But this year, this academic year, 2010-2011, we have 300 people with albinism who are being sponsored from kindergarten to university level to be educated. Unfortunately, in Tanzania, because people do not understand albinism and everything that goes with albinism, like the law vision, people think that persons with albinism it's not, it's not proper to invest on their education because who will they become after all? Before they're 30, they may die. Cancer will kill them. But also discrimination and stigma, prejudice, can also kill them. Because if we don't give them equal opportunities, we're discriminating against them. If we don't give them all the, the tools that they need in order to learn simple things like magnif- magnifiers, reading glasses, bigger prints, and sunscreen lotion, if we don't give it to them, We're discriminating against them. We don't give them the opportunity to study, to be educated, to live like other people without albinism. So education for people with albinism and education for people without albinism, that is the public. Those are the things that we need to do. But also to lobby to keep on telling our politicians it is wrong to go to witch doctors and to believe in them, and it is wrong to discriminate Mm -hmm. against persons with albinism. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a big task, isn't it, to try and uh, come at that from all of those different angles. And so we wanted to just invite you as an individual into this process, as Vicki described, and prayer and advocacy work and working with um, trying to see children go through schools. And so uh, in Tanzania, uh, there's an under the same sun office. There's about 14 staff that are there and uh, they administer the scholarship program and many other initiatives trying to work in those areas uh, that you describe. Just thinking about uh, very personally, Vicki, for you, um, how can we pray for you? What keeps you kind of going in the midst of these pressures and challenges and in the midst of very powerful forces aligned against you? What is it that keeps you going? Prayers and prayers. Mm-hmm. Belief in God mm-hmm. and prayers from friends mm-hmm. is tough. But I look at myself and I say I'm lucky. There are thousands and hundreds of thousands of people with albinism who are not lucky. They didn't get that opportunity to go to school. Some of them are in their 40s, in their their 30s. They're not educated. There are a lot of them out there. And when you listen to the stories, the children here, I cannot give you the graphic details. But just imagine 67 babies, children, women, 
men have been attacked. 58 of them have died just because someone wanted a leg, blood, hair, an arm. Six amputees, they've lost their limbs. And we have 10 graves that have been desecrated and body parts stolen. And we have three people who, are, who have been severely injured just because someone wanted their body parts. So when you go to the families of these victims, when you speak to the amputees with albinism, you are not going to keep quiet. You will do something. And I'm there, and I was told time and time again to leave my country because it was dangerous for me. And I said it's dangerous because I'm talking about the killings of persons with albinism because I exposed the witch doctors because I know quite a lot of politicians who are involved in these killings. And that is why it's dangerous for me. I'm one person. We have 170,000 persons with albinism in Tanzania. The number may be bigger than this because no one has bothered to count persons with albinism. Although every time President Yakaya Kikweto of Tanzania keeps on saying we need that census. So if you don't know the number of the people that you rule, how, will, how can you help them? So if by talking about this, by exposing these witch doctors and all those people who are involved in the killings of persons with albinism, these are my brothers and sisters, I am in danger, then be it. I am not going to leave my country. I love my country. I love Tanzania. But also, I am their sister, their mother. And would you run away from your family because they are attacked? And you're a little bit different from them? I'm not different from them. I'm a human being just like them. A God's creation. So that's why I keep on doing that. And I'll continue to do that for as long as God breathes in me. We have people who have been given a second chance. There are six of them, the amputees. They don't have legs, they don't have arms. If they had even artificial arms and legs, they would do something for the nation. And we keep on forgetting that their disability is not of choice. And it's not a disease. It is just a genetic condition. So, am I going to leave them? I've lived with people with contagious diseases. I've gone to hospitals when doctors told me, don't enter that ward. As a reporter, I entered. As a human being, I entered. Because I was told that I'll die. But God gave me life. 
That was a contagious disease. Today, as I speak here, as I'm here in your church, and thank you for inviting me, some people are waiting for me to change into a woman with albinism. <laughs> and I say, that's fine. <laughs> I want to look at their faces when I change. <laughs> I know I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to change, but that will be a blessing. So are they going to run away from me? And the reason they say that is because I live with persons with albinism. Sometimes I foster children who, under the same sun, rescues from dangerous zones. And I invite them in my home, and they become my children. And I've got adults also with albinism, and I invite them. And I, sometimes I even share the bed with them. I haven't changed. And people have disowned me, some of my relatives, saying that I should stop living and being so close with the albino community. Well, I said to them, good riddance, if you don't want me, that's fine. Because this is a call. It chose me. And I know it's because I'm dealing with God's creation. Well, Vicki, you are an incredibly brave individual. And we, you need to know that now you have a whole group of friends here at Jericho Ridge and here in Canada who will be praying for you. And so just as we conclude our time together, I'm going to ask anybody that would like to come up and to pray uh, for Vicky to join us just up here on the stage and we'll create some room for that to happen. Sure. We just do that down uh, just in the front on the floor here, so we'll have some more room. Just anyone that would like to join us and pray, and for you, Vicki, just move to the front just a little bit here. And just by coming and uh, laying our hands on you, we want you to know that we will be praying for you, and we will be supporting you in the work that God has called you to do. So let's pray together. God, we say thank you for the way in which you work in our world. We say thank you for the way in which you have prepared Vicki for the work and the calling that she has in her life. And God, we thank you for her courage and her confidence and her trust in you. We thank you that your word says that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world and that she lives that out day in, day out. And so, God, we would pray for your continued hand of protection on her. There are many who would seek to harm her, Father. But we agree here together in prayer that we would lift her to you, Father, and ask for your angels to guard and to keep her, to guide her. We pray that you would thwart the plans that the enemy has for her and that you would keep her safe and that you would not help her not to stay silent in any way, Father. Those that would come against her, we pray that she would continue, her voice would continue to be heard, and that the message that she has and the spirit in which she communicates it, Father, would continue to be heard. And so, Father, we pray that your hand would be on her work and the work of Under the Same Sun in Tanzania. We pray that those things that she invited us into of prayer and advocacy and support, that those would continue and that those would increase, Father. And you would give her and the team that's there and the team that's here in Canada incredible wisdom as to how to go about those roles and tasks. And so, God, we just stand with her now in this moment. And it's not just this moment, Father. We, we continue to stand with her and with the group and anyone that works for justice in that place. Father, we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven, in Tanzania as it is in heaven. And so, Father, we thank you for her story. We pray that you would...
take it and use it in our lives and in our hearts to help us to work for the things that you call us to. And justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. And so, Father, we pray that for Vicki. We pray that for everyone that is, she's involved with in the staff there. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Well, thank you for being with us. And we want you to know there's a number of people uh, from the Under the Same Sun team that are here. And uh, there is a, an information booth that's available over there. And if you would like to connect further with Under the Same Sun and find out more about the work uh, that's going on in Tanzania, then uh, please feel free to do that. There'll be a laptop over there if you want to sign up for an email newsletter that you can stay informed that can help prompt you to pray and prompt you uh, to be about the things that God is calling us to be about as a global uh, community of faith. So thank you for being here with us uh, this morning. If you want to continue to interact with Vicki and the team, we invite you to do that. Uh, don't forget to stop in and, uh, and uh, ask Chris at the Welcome uh, Center if there's anything else that we can do, any other ways that we can serve you here at Jericho Rich. And we look forward uh, to being with you again and seeing you in other contexts as God gives you grace and strength. So go in his peace. Amen.